Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm your podcast host and a professor who cares about science communication. And today we're going to talk about the endpoint in the biotechnology process, at least as it applies to agriculture. We're going to talk about the consumer we're going to talk about some specific consumers and their attitudes towards the type of production systems that are used in food and how that balances against price. And it comes out from a paper in the future <laughs> from the March 2021 Journal of Agriculture and Food Research um, from the group from Stuart Smythe. How are you doing, Stuart? Good, Kevin. Good to hear. Good to hear from you. It's really nice to talk to you. And uh, you getting some ice time? No, sadly, our hockey season was canceled because our rink is being has been targeted as the uh, overflow for the ICU and the hospitals in the city. So we're we're just watch waiting for the start of NHL hockey here in in two weeks. Wow, that's right. Yeah, well, that's that's really sad. So Stuart is at the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon, Canada, a place I've been to a bunch of times, and uh, he's a really good goalie, I hear. <laughs> well, I get a lot of help from my demon. Well, one one of these days I'll get to test you out. I, I haven't I haven't put down a slap shot in eighteen years, and in Florida you don't get much of a crack at that. So, well, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> when I was a postdoc, I got to skate a bit. That was kind of cool. Oh, but, uh, yeah, it's been a while, but that you know. But uh, back to the whole paper. Reason why we're here. Um, you really wanted to gauge some interesting facets about consumer choices and how they relate to uh, technology. And, and, you know, you're an economist by training and you've done a lot of work in that area and, and that kind of borderlines with psychology and consumer trends. But, but can you give me a general finger on the pulse of the Canadian consumer? What are they really looking for in their food? And maybe how do they differ from, say, other North American consumers? I, I don't think there's a lot of difference between Canadian consumers and American consumers, Kevin. I mean, when I, I see the literature out of the, you know, the, the leading researchers in the States, it, they're saying pretty much the same thing as, as Canadians are. Is, and one of the big ones is that, that most consumers self-acknowledge that they don't have a, a great deal of understanding about how agriculture crops are produced and, and how how food is you know how how those ingredients are then processed into to food products to end up on on grocery store shelves and so the the thing we wanted to explore a little bit was you know that relationship between trust that consumers have in in sort of the the larger big picture food system and then what their perceptions were about some of the innovative food products and and what we ended up finding was that the Canadians have a, you know, and similar to Americans, sort of about 75% of, of respondents 
have a have a pretty high level of trust in in the food system uh, to deliver safe, nutritious food. Yet they they have concerns when it comes to innovative new food products. And so that was what we wanted to try to take a look at. And it's really important for this podcast and for the you know folks who listen to it and maybe the industries that are associated because if you don't have consumer trust on your side, it, it changes the, the dynamic of so many things, you know, the food labels and how many, you know, how much people are willing to buy or spend. And so that's really what you gauged here. But can you give me an idea of how you uh, how you tested this? Sure. So so what we did is we asked consumers specifically about their concerns regarding the purchase of GM food products. And so two thirds of the respondents, and that ties in with a lot of the other studies and and literature over the last four or five years, two thirds of of the respondents to our survey said that they were concerned about consuming GM food products. So then we started to to ask them some questions about if if a GM food product had more nutrition and was priced the same as a as a conventional food product, would you buy it? And what we found was that consumers then started to to shift their purchase decisions to say that yeah, if it had more nutrition or if it required less chemicals to be produced and was priced the same or even less you know or less than a conventional product, they would buy it. And so what we found is. Well, two-thirds of consumers initially said they had concerns about buying GM food products. Half of them said they would buy a GM food product if it was uh, priced the same or lower than a conventional product. So so when we give them an actual product to think about, we find that, that what they tell researchers, you know, sitting at home when they're not in a grocery store is very different than what they do in a grocery store. I have to think about that for a minute. So do you think that in a grocery store context that the, well, what is the current status in Canada on labels and that kind of thing for GE crops? So in Canada, it's a voluntary label that the only way that Health Canada would require a company to label a food product is if there was a, a significant change in, in the nutritional composition of the food product. And so because that's not changing, whether you're using a, a GM ingredient or or a non-GM ingredient, it's it's up to food companies to decide whether or not they want to voluntarily label a, a food product as a, as genetically modified. So when I look in the grocery stores, and you know, I've still yet to run across a, a food product that's got a voluntary GM food label on it. Okay, and so who were the participants in the study? So we used a, an online uh, consumer panel company and what they what we did is we contracted with them to provide 500 uh, responses of english-speaking canadians we didn't have the survey translated into french so so we can't we we can't say that we're we're representative of the province of quebec but but we do have a, a representative sample demographically speaking uh, for for the canadian english-speaking population Okay, and just generally kind of an assortment of ages and things too, because it seems like that, you know, when, at least when I've been in Canada, it seems like there's a lot of little pockets across the different provinces of uh, sentiment against new food technologies. Yeah, so the, 
what the the company we contracted with is is they guarantee you to to get a, a pretty representative sample of uh, a split between uh, male and female um, by province by education and and so we came out pretty pretty accurate on that we have a, a slightly higher slightly um, older and a slightly wealthier sample than than the average population but but we we couldn't find any evidence that that, that was going to negatively impact the the survey and and the I think the one thing in, in Canada is that that probably differs a little bit than the states is we've got three very large cities Montreal Toronto and Vancouver with with several million people in, in each city and so the responses coming out of those cities tend to or or can tend to to influence a, a national survey if you if you're not taking care to make sure that you're getting a, a equal representation from these uh, areas of the uh, of Canada that that are outside these three large urban areas yeah, I think that was what I was getting at because I know that like Vancouver and Toronto have some very strong feelings one way where if you go out on the prairies, it's something very different. And I was wondering does, if that was segmented out in this particular study or if that's work to go forward, uh, something to look at in the future. We didn't delve into that too much. We, we did make sure that we were trying to get a, a demographic representation across each province that that were outside of the, the three big cities. So I think we did fairly well on that, um, that, that we've got a, a population of, or a, a sample size here of 500 odd people that, that do provide a, a good cross representation of, of, um, you know, Canadians living in, in large urban centers, uh, smaller metropolitan regions, and then, then um, in, in rural areas as well. So what were the big findings? I know that you talked about a couple earlier about how people were were willing to uh, pay for a, uh, a higher price if there was more nutrition or perhaps, um, you know, required less chemistry to, to grow them. What were some of the findings that you found as being especially significant? One of the ones that that surprised us a little bit was how much support people had for um, sort of the the origins. Where was the the where did the food product originate from? And and that was one that I'd not you know it, it it's always been a a factor that that sort of you know middling importance and it, it's not one of the the top three or top five but but it came out as as the fifth most important factor in in our survey was that Canadians are sort of increasingly expressing a, a preference for for um, you know, a bit of nationalism when it comes to food products that they they do want to support this idea of, of buy locally. And, and that's something we've certainly seen during the, the pandemic is a lot of um, smaller businesses, you know, and, and Canadian consumers expressing the support for for um, supporting their, their local stores. And in this case, um, you know, local food producers. Yeah, that's a, that's a big one, I guess, you know, that you know, being able to, uh, support local business. But what about some of the other attributes? I know that they talked about, uh, at least in the paper, issues about, you know, if that they were willing to pay more if it really, in fact, affected a whole series of different consumer attributes, if it was, uh, uh, let's say, it tasted better, you know, that kind of thing, or gave them a price break. You know, wh what were some of the other ones that, that you looked at? Well, 
So we looked at, at, a, at a host of ones. Um, so, so we asked consumers if they would pay more for a nutritional or for a, a food product, a GM food product that had higher nutrition and, and cost a bit of a premium for that nutrition. And, and half of consumers said they'd be very unlikely to do that. So then we started probing a little bit about saying, okay, well, if it, if it had higher nutrition, but uh, was priced the same as a non-GM product. And we we saw the opposition drop by almost half, um, whereas 49% said they wouldn't purchase it the first time, that dropped down to 28%. And the, and interestingly then, the, the majority of the responses, 39 said, yeah, if it was priced the same and had more nutrition, um, they'd be, they'd, they had no problem buying it. Uh, 44% said they would, they would pay again, the, the same price to buy products that required uh, fewer chemicals in the production process. Uh, 45% said they'd pay more or pay the same price for, for GM food products that, that had more flavor. Um, and then certainly a GM product that was lower priced, it didn't matter what the trait was, uh, 46% said. So, you know, between sort of 40 and, and 47, 46% of consumers were willing to buy GM food products um, as long as they're they're priced equal to what con a conventional food product was, so so that really sort of stood out for us as as defying what a lot of the other literature was saying, where consumers, you know, sort of that two thirds were saying that um, you know they're uncertain about GM food products and, and would avoid trying to, to purchase them. So so we found the opposite of that actually. And, and we'll drill down on that on the second half of the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Stuart Smythe. He's a professor at the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon. And we'll be back with more Talking Biotech podcast in just a moment. Once available, your company or organization can absolutely benefit from more COVID-19 compliance with the vaccine. But will your employees get the jab or follow the guidance from some wacky website? Broad vaccination benefits everyone, and it's critical to returning our economies to normal, one business at a time. Plus, it's good for a healthy community. But vaccine hesitancy is still very real and threatens our economies and communities. Dr. Kevin Fulta and Dr. Asha Bruni have developed a COVID-19 communications program to inspire vaccination through education. This one-hour empowering seminar gives your colleagues or employees the tools they need to effectively communicate the pandemic realities and remedies with their family and friends. It is a train-the-trainers event deputizing your employees to take leadership roles in curbing the pandemic. The program covers communication strategies, why the vaccine is necessary, and the benefits that come from a healthy and vaccinated population. Lots of your questions are answered. The presentation has already been presented to over 10,000 people in leading corporations and municipalities. For more information, check out the COVID-19 Communications tab on KevinFolta.com. 
And now back to this week's podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Stuart Smythe, who's a professor at the University of Saskatchewan in lovely Saskatoon, Canada. Um, and uh, so how is COVID going up there right now? We're back under sort of post, uh, post-Christmas lockdowns, or, or not lockdowns, but, but more restrictions that uh, larger retail stores are, are only allowed to have 25% occupancy. and uh, But but we haven't closed any businesses down. Um, you know, we still have all of our our economy functioning. The, the restaurants are, are open with, again, but with limited capacity. So, so we're hopeful that, you know, our numbers have come down probably by about 25% in the last three weeks. So keep our fingers crossed that if we do have an increase in January after the holidays, it's just a small one. Yeah, I guess the reason I wanted to ask is because, you know, when we talk about this change in attitude about, you know, how people who would have concerns but still are comfortable making the buy, buying decisions if price and quality and shelf life and all that stuff is still um, favorable, they're willing to take a chance on biotech food. How much do you think that the whole COVID thing and maybe even the development of the vaccine how much do you think that that played a role in in this or was this survey done back before all the covid stuff really hit yeah the the this survey was done in august of 2018 so way in Ah. advance of 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 things yeah but i see that's an important overlay if it was done recently so I think one of the things recently that, you know, I've seen a little bit on, on some of the grocery store shelves is um, certainly that some of the niche market products that, that have a significant price premium, um, th- those those shelves are, are stocked full every time I've walked by them. And, and, you know, it's the, it's the conventional food products that are, you know, the, the mainstream stuff that um, are the ones where the, the shelves are certainly depleted. So, you know, I think, you know, people having lower incomes or, or the, those households that are have lost their jobs, they may have had a preference for, for a niche market product, an, an organic product or a non-GMO product or, you know, something like that. But it would be interesting to, to come back and survey and, and see just how many people have adhered to, to their dietary preferences through the pandemic. That's a really good point. And were there a lot of people who had, uh, when, when surveyed, had different dietary restrictions or uh, maybe preferences that they let you know about in the survey? We asked a little bit about that, sort of what some of their, um, you know, household dietary styles were. And what we, the biggest one was, Nine um, percent of Canadians identified themselves as vegetarians, um, and then ranging down from there to the to the single digits, with only three percent saying they're vegans, and and we had a, had a few other things, um, you know, four or five percent saying they were uh, tried to avoid seafood and some of those things, and um, dairy and, and gluten free at sort of about seven percent. So so maybe one in one in 11 or one in 12 uh, 
Canadians would identify as, as sort of having a special dietary preferences. Okay, so that didn't play too much into this, most likely, but um, but there are certainly folks in this that could have shifted your your uh, data a little bit. But when I when I the thing that always amazes me are the people who answer a question with "don't know." <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like you just ask your opinion, like, you know, uh, how do you feel about buying something that is non GM, but requires fewer chemicals, you know, compared to something that's GM. Um, and they can't even formulate a response to it. Um, it's, it, those always amaze me, but, um, in general, are there any other real surprises that came out of this other than people say one thing, but would do another? One of the things that, so, so we asked them specifically about some of the, the categories saying, you know, would you be willing to purchase a, a GM or, you know, even a gene edited food product from, from a group of, of seven different products. And, and what we found was that consumers expressed the, the highest support for, for the directly consumable products. So when we asked them, would you purchase um, a genetically modified fruit or a vegetable? The response rates were were virtually identical. Um, if we take out the the ones that have no opinion or don't know, then it was 50-50. Half the consumers would buy GM fruits and vegetables, and half wouldn't. So, so that really showed showed us that when it comes to the opportunity to purchase something that's been GM is as a, a fresh fruit product that they vegetable they can pick up and hold and look at and say, you know, this looks like a good tomato or a good apple or a good potato. Yeah. And it's, it's priced. I see it's GM and it's priced lower than, then that's fine. Whereas on the processing side of things, some of that information may, may not be on, on, on the product and consumers um, said they were, they had more reservations about buying food products or meat products Um that, that had been processed. So things like bread, uh, packaged and canned goods. And how do you think that that's changed over time? I think what we've seen is a, is a strong increase is consumers are, are identifying that, that a, a genetically modified. So we've got potatoes uh, rolling out. We've got papaya, we've got pineapple and apples. And, and we're seeing more GM directly consumable foods. And, and clearly consumers are saying, you know what, um, this meets my requirements for safe, nutritious, healthy food. And it, it's priced in the um, at, it's, it's at, at a price that that I'm willing to, to spend the money on. And, and so I, you know, based on what we're seeing is is we, this trend should continue and as as more fruits and vegetables come on the market, I think we'll see consumers support swing more towards um, the biotech side of things than than we previously witnessed before. Yeah, it seems that uh, consistent with the results you found. And do you think that those results extrapolate to other places like North, uh, you know, U.S. or maybe even the EU? I think it would be interesting to to con- to continue a survey like this. I think it would. The results would be pretty similar in the states, but but we know particularly within the EU that that a lot of Europeans are expressing preferences for for lower chemical use in in crop and food production. So it would be willing to see if they would accept the purchase of a GM food product that that used less chemicals compared to a, a conventional product. 
Yeah, and they they pay a lot more for it too. I mean, I've I've purchased fruits and vegetables in Europe and very expensive. And so when you start to put the high costs against, you know, especially against COVID and the other recent uh, uh, pressures on scarcity and also incomes, I wonder if their attitude has shifted. I can't, any- I can't see how it would stay the same, Kevin. I, you know, anytime you get sort of these economic adversities through through fewer hours at your job or or loss of a job. I mean, it, if, if a household is, is trying to get by on 60 or 70 percent of, of pre-COVID incomes, absolutely, uh, you know, they will make some hard decisions right across their their spending pattern. And, and some of that will include their food purchasing. That's a really good point. And, and based upon that, based upon your findings of your study, do you think that companies maybe should be leaning into this a little bit more and that the producers of GE crops who or seeds who sell to farmers really should be talking to consumers about how we're keeping your prices down? I mean, is, do you think that that's something that would uh, really be an attractive communication step for the large companies? I think it, it would certainly help inform consumers about the contribution that biotech crops have made over the last 20, 25 years that with the increased production, food, you know, food prices have obviously risen over the the past 25 years, but the percentage increase in those prices is lower than what it may have been without the additional production from GM crops. So I, I think helping consumers understand that, you know, even if it's a it's an in, if it's a trait such as herbicide tolerance or insect resistance that that really benefits the producers, they still end up benefiting from from more stable prices. So so helping consumers understand that I think is an important step that the food industry should be looking at. That's really important. What about policy? I mean, how do you think that this can affect the way that governments look at issues like labeling, et cetera? I think there's an opportunity here for some proactive sustainability labeling. And again, it's up to the the food companies to decide whether or not they think there's merit in putting a a GM or a non-GM label on a food product. But, But certainly what we're seeing is that if you can say that the product has increased nutrition or was produced using fewer chemicals, that's something that consumers are are resonating towards. Yeah, it's a really interesting concept to think about that. But what about um, taking advantage of the where it's grown kind of label too for products that are produced within Canada? I think that's probably something that that would be similar in the States too, Kevin, that we're seeing consumers and, and and during the COVID, I think that's probably only been enhanced that that consumers want to support local businesses and, and local business owners. And, and you know, in, in some cases, that may mean that they're paying a slightly higher food price to, to buy some of those products. And but but that's a trade off that they're they might be willing to pay. Right. Is that, you know, if I if I know that these this corn or these potatoes were were grown within 100 or 200 miles. I'll pay an extra five cents a pound just to support that. Yeah, I think we do see that. You know, my wife sells at farmers markets and we see 
people are still coming out and they come out there, uh, even w- older folks, even ones who would potentially be in high risk groups because they, they want to take advantage of feeling it, you know, that's safer outdoors for one and still kind of warm here and everybody's covered up and everything, but it, they love to support local businesses during, uh, during the pandemic and uh, may continue to, to search for food that's produced not within a hundred miles, but within five miles. And mm-hmm. uh, so they find that really attractive. And I, I think that's been um, something that the big food producers and our grocery store chains have failed to capitalize on because we produce so much food here in the state during the winter, uh, maybe even getting up to you. And, uh, and we just don't put that on there. And I think it's a really good place for us to maybe be able to enhance sales by talking about where they come from here in the state. It certainly is. It, it, I think it's an important trend. And, and our challenge in Canada is that we can only supply, you know, the, the fresh produce side of things for for a portion of the season. And, and, you know, at this time of the year, the vast majority of of our fruits and vegetables are, are imported from, you know, California, Florida, or, or other parts of Central and Latin America. So it's, it, it raises a question, though, is, you know, what kind of market is there for enhanced greenhouse or hothouse production in, in collaboration with some of our energy um, plants where, you know, where a lot of heat is, is lost through um, exhaust or, or steam? Could that be funneled through, through greenhouses and provide really low cost heat to, to maybe provide more fresh produce in the wintertime to, to some of these larger cities? No, and there's a lot of folks thinking about that and, and a lot of, about building uh, greenhouses and other types of food production infrastructure right on those facilities. And so it's, it's pretty exciting stuff. And I, you know, I, I think that Canada, just from my feeling, has been a lot more progressive in terms of getting um, agriculture into controlled environments and meaning greenhouses and, you know, black boxes. Um, than we have in the States, but it could also be a function of weather, you know, exploiting that long uh, non-growing season. But, you know, any other really big trends that you see for Canadian agriculture that uh, that are on the radar and things that you're going to take a look at? One of the things we'd really like to explore is that, um, that there's relationship between the trust that consumers have in, in the, in the, the safety of the food system and the high levels of trust in farmers, you know, three quarters of Canadians say they, they have a place, a high level of trust in farmers when it comes to information about food products. So, so if Canadians have, you know, high levels of trust in the food safety system and in, in the job that farmers do, why is it that that level of trust drops off substantially when it comes to new food products and, and, I don't have a good answer at this point, but I think that's a really interesting question to try and probe and 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 learn more about some of the specific factors that are responsible for the reduction in trust when when a consumer moves from thinking about the system as a whole or the the farmers producing the food to seeing an, a, an innovative food product either on a grocery store or, or hearing about it. On, on in the media or on social media. So so trying to explore that relationship a little bit. 
Okay, so one final question. Who do you think is going to win the Stanley Cup next year? Oh, the Philadelphia Flyers. They, they're way overdue. <laughs> and you know, I've been a Blackhawks fan since I was a little kid because I grew up in Chicago. I went to games in the early 70s. And uh, gosh, it's sad seeing such a talented group of te- uh, people not be able to put it together. But they had some great players, but haven't done haven't even made the playoffs in a few years. Yeah, I've I've got a jersey, a Flyers jersey, signed by four of the Flyers that won Stanley Cups back in the early seventies, and it's it's a it's a real memento for me. I'm I'm like you, the Flyers were the the team to beat when I was started playing hockey myself. So it'd be nice to see them come back and have a, a fantastic run this year, next year, I guess. Yeah, I used to watch the Flyers play the Islanders almost every year in the Stanley Cup, and oh. that was on, and it was like on like a weird UHF channel that if I put foil on the rabbit ears and bent them the right way, I could watch it in the middle of the night on some, on like, you know, the Spanish uh, channel from uh, in Chicago. So it was a, yeah, it was, it was real strange back then, but it's good that it's gotten more popular and, uh, and, you know, going forward. So that's all good. (laughs) Yeah. Well, with the Canadian division this, this season, it's going to be really interesting watching, you know, Toronto and Montreal play each other nine or 10 times and Calgary and Edmonton play each other similar number of games. So no, I think there's some, some new, new rivalries in the, in these realigned divisions that, that should make for some really exciting hockey. And uh, welcome, to, welcome to hockey talk. <laughs> I just a always, sports podcast next week. Yeah, I, I just, I just really appreciate every time I get to talk to Stuart, and we just BS about everything across the spectrum. So you know, it, it happens naturally every time. But uh, you know, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today, Stuart. Really nice to talk to you. It was Kevin. All the best to you in in twenty twenty one. Happy New Year. <laughs> Yeah, thank you, and Happy New Year to you, too. And and Happy New Year to all of the listeners. Uh, Hopefully 2021 will bring us more innovation in the biotech space that will not only shag out COVID-21, or COVID-21, oh no, I invented a new one, (laughs) COVID-19, but uh, maybe can soften the interface between consumers and how much they're willing to trust the technologies that, uh, that, that are now shaping medicine and continue to shape innovation in agriculture. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Podcast reflects the personal Hi everybody. views of Dr. In all the Fulta talk of slap shots and face-offs, I neglected to mention Dr. Smythe's contact information. You can read his work on the Safe Food CA website. That's S-A-I-F-O-O-D dot C-A website, which stands for Sustainable Agriculture Innovation and Food. He's also on Twitter at Stuart Smythe, S-M-Y-T-H-66. Thanks again. We'll talk to you again next guests. week. And support this us time for a sure. few shekels over on Patreon. 
We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.